Our scripture reading today is from Philippians 3, 12 through 4, uh, 1. It's on page 981 in the Pew Bible that's in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we invite you to take the one that's in front of you as a gift from us. Um, we would love for you to do that. Philippians 3, 12. Now that I have already obtained this, or I'm all... Not, excuse me, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and we are so glad that you are with us today. It's so good to see each one of you, especially if this is maybe your very first time ever at Christ Community. I know that walking into a new church for the first time is not an easy thing to do. So thanks for doing that, for being with us, um, for, for being here today. And also, if you um, are, are come, have come back for the first time after being gone for a really long time, I saw some folks in, in first service who I hadn't seen in over a year. We're just so glad to have you back in person with us. So, so glad that you're here. And as we uh, look at the, the passage that Casey just read for us, I want to do, as we do each week, pray and ask for God's help in understanding the goodness of this word that he's given to us. So let's do this. Father, we do, we mean those words that we say every week. That, you know, this is the word, thanks be to God. Thank you for speaking these words to us, for giving us the gift of your word. Thank you that it points in every nook and cranny to Jesus, who has made us his own. And would you now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in a way that can only happen by your Spirit, would you make this word living and active in our lives, helping us to endure, helping us to remain faithful. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, I will never forget uh, mile 21. Mile 21. It was 2007, and I was running my very first ever marathon. I was a seminary student. It was a Chicago marathon. And as I was rounding the corner, I came to the mile marker for mile marker 20. 
And that was really significant because when you train for a marathon, you don't actually run all 26.2 miles in training. You usually only train to about 20 miles. And I just, I had this realization as I passed mile marker 20 that I was now, I was now in mile 21. I was now running further than I had ever run before in my life. And I was exhausted. And I looked down at my watch which was maybe a mistake, but I looked down at my watch and I realized my pace had slowed to, to over 10 minutes per mile. And my mind, I was, I was foggy, I was tired, but I did some mental math there. And, and I did the calculation, 10 minute mile, I got up six miles left and it, and it hit me at mile 21. I've got an hour left of running. <laughs> I've got an hour left of running. If I don't slow down <laughs> more than I already am. I've got another hour to keep going. And whether or not you've ever run a marathon, right? we've all had kind of mile 21 moments in our lives, right? Those moments where you have been hanging on, pressing forward, enduring, and you're running on fumes, and then you realize it's not even close to being over. And what do you do in those mile 21 moments of life? Maybe you're there today. Maybe you're there right now. I think over the last 12, 14 months, all that we've been through, pandemic, politics, everything that's been happening in our country, we've all been there in one way or another. Because regardless of what you look like on the outside, I feel like this is what most of our souls look like on the inside. (laughs) I think this is kind of the place they're at. That, that's actually elite marathoner Haley Crothers, who was uh, tr- crawling toward the finish line uh, of the London Marathon back in 2019. And she did actually manage to, to finish. Uh, she could not stand, but she managed to beat her own personal best time. Uh, it was an incredible time, two hours and you know, some minutes. It was in- incredible. But she said in this article she gave to the BBC, the interview, that it, particularly she mentioned mile 20 as being this moment of just kind of realizing her pace and how much more she had to go and how heavy that was for her. So when, and I say when, not if, when we reach those mile 21 moments in our lives, what do we do? How do we continue to press on? And that's what the Apostle Paul addresses in this section of his letter to the Philippian church. This ancient city of Philippi, there's this brand new, these like little, this little tiny community of Christians, and this is a brand new movement, and they're facing all kinds of hardship and following Jesus and figuring that out. And Paul, as sort of this tender pastor, and he almost kind of takes on the posture of of an encouraging coach, pleads with them in this moment, don't give up, my beloved. Don't give up, my beloved. This is Paul's word to them in chapter 4, verse 1. He said, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, stand firm in this way, my beloved. Stand firm, brothers and sisters. Don't give up, my beloved. That's what Paul is saying. Don't give up, my beloved. And and that's my word uh, to each of you this morning. Don't give up, my beloved. Uh, That's the apostle Paul's word to you this morning. Don't give up, my beloved. That's, that's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's word to you this morning. Don't give up, my beloved. 
But the question is, is how? And, and that's the one thing, again, if, if you take nothing else away from this morning, I hope it's that, that you don't, don't give up. Keep pushing on. But how? How do you do that? How do you keep pressing on? Well, that's really what Paul answers in all the verses that are leading up to chapter 4, verse 1. That's what Paul leads us up to. So if you don't, uh, haven't done this yet, I'd encourage you to open up a Bible, grab the, the Pew Bible in, in front of you. It's page 981. You can pull it up on your phone. If you just type in P-H-I-L, that's the abbreviation for Philippians. If you just put into Google P-H-I-L 3, you will find a website that can pull up the, the Bible for you and look at it. I just would love for you to follow along with me in this, in this text, whether in the Pew Bible on your phone. And we're going to start in chapter 3 at verse 12. And what we're going to see here is that Paul is going to give us kind of three key things that we need to endure in this race to finish well. We first need encouragement to finish. We need examples to follow. And then we also need an expectation of victory. So that's what we're going to see as we walk through encouragement, examples, and expectation. And if you see in verse 12, that's kind of a section that is this encouragement to finish. And what you're going to notice as we read these verses again is the, the language of pressing on, taking hold. Paul is using the, the metaphor of a long-distance race, which is what his uh, readers in ancient kind of Greco-Roman culture were familiar with, long-distance race. And actually, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, there's been a big revival of, of running and, and long-distance racing in our cultural context. So it's actually a resonant, not all the metaphors easily cross from 2,000 years uh, of history, but this is one that really connects, I think, to so many of us today. So take a look at verse 12. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal. This is that, that goal language is the first kind of hint of this metaphor. But I press on to take hold for that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Life with Jesus, Paul is saying, is an endurance race. That's the metaphor he's setting up. This life of following Jesus is an endurance race. And if we are going to finish, if we're not going to give up, my beloved, in those mile 21 moments especially, then we need encouragement. We need encouragement to finish. And, you know, as I think back to that race in 2007, it really was the encouragement of literally hundreds of people who had lined the pathway of that race. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. But who just called out words of encouragement. Keep going. Looking good. Cracked a joke. The encouragement, the signs, especially the funny signs that people would hold up. Even as I got into mile 22, mile 23, my head started to lift a little bit. I was a little less down. My feet started moving ever so slightly faster. Not much faster. But at least I didn't slow down further. I didn't stop. And that's what Paul is saying. We need those kind of people in our lives. That if we're going to endure in this Christian life, we need people who are going to encourage us in this. Because the hills are steep in following Jesus. They are. And we have to be honest about that. The hills are steep in this race. And we can name lots of different hills that we face. I mean, I think one big one that we face right now, just across the board, no matter who you are, is just the, the larger question of the cultural implausibility of, of so many of the core teachings of Jesus today. 
Or that's teachings about sexuality or money or self-sacrifice or how power is used. There's just a lot of implausibility to the message of Christianity in the broader culture. That's a big hill to climb. Uh, there's a whole other categories of hills. Of mental health, of, of depression. Or maybe, you're, maybe you're facing an addiction. It's a big hill. I think another one, kind of on the broader cultural level, is, is the hill of kind of the, the mindset of you only live once, that you, we have this man, mentality that if we are going to find all of the longings and hopes of our hearts, it has to be within this 80-year lifespan, that there isn't something beyond this, that we have to get it now. It's a big hill to climb. There's the hills of, of fear, anxiety, of distraction, I mean, technology is such a gift, right? But I mean, the, the spiritual formation implications of always having a device in your pocket that can distract you at the slightest moment of boredom. I mean, it makes it hard to pay attention to one another that we can see, uh, much less to an invisible God. I think distraction is a huge hill to climb in this cultural moment. So, so how do you keep pressing on in the face of those hills? Well, Paul gives us two encouraging words here that he talks about. How do you keep pressing on? There, there are two. There's one is, is forgetting and the other is straining forward. Forgetting and straining forward. He says, forgetting what is behind. Now, what Paul means here is not pretending like the past hasn't happened or trying to ignore it, right? Any, any, good, any good counselor, uh, any good uh, pastor, any good friend is going to tell you, if you just try to ignore your past and pretend like it didn't happen and ignore the origins of your story, that is not a recipe for succeeding in this race, right? So Paul's point is you don't pretend like the past didn't happen. You don't try to ignore it. But rather, he says, what you want to work toward is to where your past is no longer a distraction for you in running the race in the present. It's no longer something that is, that is pulling you down, and I think oftentimes we think of that in terms of, of failure, right? Like, oh, there's these, these big failures in my life that, that keep me from, from going forward. But our successes can just as easily do that as well. And Paul, if you read back in the context, right, the verses ahead of this, he's listed off this incredible resume. And he's saying all of it, both the good and the bad, all of his achievements, that, yeah, I'm forgetting all of that. I'm, this is not going to define me any longer. Because you can think about Paul, he has some big failures, right? Before he met Jesus on that road to Damascus, had this profound encounter of transformation. I mean, he was literally trying to destroy the Jesus movement. He, he watched as Stephen, one of the Christians, earliest Christians, was stoned to death for following Jesus. And I, I wonder, did Paul ever, I mean, how could he have gotten those images out of his mind of Stephen dying? And do you think he ever thought back on that and thought, oh my goodness, like, like how, can, how can I keep planning churches when I, when I have these memories in my mind of, of, of watching Stephen die? How could God use me? I mean, maybe, maybe you have those moments in your story. I mean, maybe it's something from your childhood or as a teenager, or maybe it's something last week where you just think, like, I, how could I move on from this? How could I do it? But, but it's not just failures that need forgetting in the sense that Paul's talking about here, but also successes, right? Because it's so easy sometimes, especially, I think this is true, the older that we get as people, where we have more behind to forget, is it can be easy to look back on our successes and well and think, oh, I've accomplished this, I've accomplished this, so now I can start to coast a little bit. 
And Paul could, I think, say, like, look at all that I've done. Look at the churches that I've started. Look at the movement and how it's spreading. But he doesn't look at either his successes or his failures and say, I'm good, or I can't go forward. It's I'm focused on what is coming ahead. He's pushing on what is ahead. And this other word then of straining forward, it's this idea of looking ahead. Scholars point out, it pictures that real, it's again, all, Paul's using all this racing, this endurance metaphor, that the picture of straining is like this runner, like reaching out toward the finish line, eyes focused on the goal. Like, I'm, I'm not going to let my past successes, failures define me anymore. I'm looking at what is ahead, and I'm straining toward that. So if we aren't going to give up in this race of following Jesus, if we aren't going to um, walk away, we need encouragement. And so my question here for us this morning is just, who's encouraging you? Do you have people in your life, specifically, who are encouraging you in this journey of following Jesus? Because you can't do it on your own. And that's one of the reasons why we gather on Sunday mornings, is to encourage one another in this. It's why we have community groups. It's why we have men's and women's Bible studies. It's why we have children's ministries and student ministries to call us together as a church family and to remind one another, this is the good news. Don't give up, my beloved. We need one another to say that to each other, to encourage one another because these gatherings, right, that we're here, this isn't really the race, what we're doing right here, but this is the cheering crowd that you need each week to say, keep going. Don't give up. We can do this. Because especially in the face of the implausibility culturally of so many of the claims of Jesus, we need other people who are saying, yes, I believe this too. Yes, this is the path to flourishing. Yes, we can keep going. So you need people who are encouraging you, but also, who are you encouraging? I think this is really key, because sometimes, and, and this is, we are all so deeply formed by consumer culture, so this is not a rip on anyone, this is, we are all this way, but we are trained in consumer culture to say, what does this thing, the store, this experience, what does this offer me? And we tend to say, well, if I opt out, there's nothing, like, I don't, I just choose, I'm not going to go and do this. But, like, the moment that you, you don't show up at your community group, or you, you start missing out on Sunday gatherings, or whatever it might be, it's not just that you are saying, I'm opting out of this thing, but your presence isn't there. And if your presence isn't there, that means that someone maybe who needed encouragement from you, that needed a warm smile from you, a hug a word of encouragement, that they're not getting that. So, so it's both, like, who are the people in your life who, who you are experiencing encouragement from, but are you showing up in the spots with other brothers and sisters in Jesus to encourage them to say, keep going, don't give up, my beloved. It's both this. But we need more than just encouragement to finish this race. We also need examples to follow. We not only need encouragement, we also need examples to follow. And, and as powerful, again, thinking back to that day in Chicago in 2007, as I was running that race, as powerful as the cheers of the crowds were in helping me finish, and believe me, I would have not finished that race if it had not been the energy coming off of those sidewalks of people cheering. But what was even more important for me in that day was actually the example of other runners on the course, in particular, the pacing teams 
I'll talk a little bit more about those, but people who had run the race before, who had set a pace, and you could run with them and, and know that you were going to finish with them at a certain time, who had set the pace. And that's what Paul does here in verse 17. He says, you need people who are going to be pacers for you in life. He says, follow my example. Verse 17, join together, he says, in following my example, brothers and sisters, as And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Again, one of the the benefits of running a a major race like the Chicago Marathon is they have these pacing teams. So these are experienced runners who have run these courses before. They have, you know, GPS watches. They know exactly how long and what pace to keep. And they hold up these little placards, these little signs. I I always thought it was like for, you know, 26 miles, they're holding this little sign up, but they do it. That lists the time, you know, eight minutes and 30 seconds, 10, 10 minutes, 10 minutes and 11 minutes, whatever it is. And that's the pace they're running, the mile per hour pace or the mile per minute, you know, pace that they're running. And if you want to run the race at a 10 minute pace, you just follow that group. And you do what the pacer does. When, when he stops to take water at an aid station, you stop. When, when she stops to, to eat some goo from the, from the uh, you know, this little power goo, you, you do that too. If they stop to take a, a, a walk break after a steep hill, you do that too. You just keep your eye on that little 10 minute, 30 second sign, nine minute, 45 second sign, and you just do what the pacer does and you'll finish the race like they do. And Paul is saying here, he's like, you need pacers in the Christian life. You need people who are ahead of you in this life of following Jesus, who you can look at and say, I want to do it like they're doing it. That doesn't necessarily mean people who are physically older than you, though oftentimes it means that. But you just need people who have been following the way of Jesus for longer than you have. You can say, this is what it looks like to raise kids in the way of Jesus. Uh, this is what it looks like to do this kind of work in the way of Jesus. Some of you may mean, I need to find another, I'm a financial planner. I need to get with other financial planners who are doing this work, who, have, who know what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus in this. Maybe you're in a teacher in law enforcement, what other kinds of vocations, where you say, I want to find other Christians who could be pacers for me. What does it look like to do this work Christianly, not just to be a Christian in this field, but actually to bring the whole scope of what it means to be a Christian to how this work is done. And he tells, Paul tells the Philippians that, that there are those who are with him who can be that for them. And we've seen this in the letter. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Taylor walked us through this really incredible passage where Paul talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he holds up both of them as these are examples that you can follow. Timothy, he's like those who who don't look out for their own interests, but look to the interests of others who serve. Look at Epaphroditus. He, Epaphroditus, he's risking his life for the gospel. Live this life like, like him. He's saying, if you want to know what it looks like to have the attitude of Christ Jesus, if you want to know what it looks like to be united with the same mind, look at me. Look at Timothy. Look at Epaphroditus. Look at how we're doing this together. We're not perfect. He says back at verse 12, and I have not already attained this, but we're making progress come run like we're running. Do it like we do. And actually this work of imitation, of learning from others how to live this life, far from kind of being uh, something that imprisons you or takes away freedom, it actually liberates you. Because if you look at people who are really thoughtful about our current cultural moment, scholars like Charles Taylor, who wrote a book called The Secular Age, probably one of the most extensive treatment of our cultural moment, or, or Carl Truman, who wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. 
what they point out is that our previous cultural history was a culture of imitation. That tradition was a really big part of this, that you would learn from previous generations. You had these patterns, these kinds of scripts that you would follow. And that's not, they don't hold that up as that is the best way. There's some negatives to that, right? Like there's some certain really good things about individualism and finding who you are uniquely created in the image of God, all of that. But what they point out is that actually when you go to a culture that moves away from imitation to one of sort of self-making, where you have to say, look inside of myself, discover who I am, and then I have to develop that fully on my own, that what happens in those moments is it puts an incredible burden on you. And actually, especially on children who are growing up in this time, because Carl Truman will point out that if you do not even have as, as stable care, like categories, like givenness and fixed categories of male and female, then, then literally everything in, about you, you have to discover create, define, build. That's an incredible burden. Following the example of others actually liberates us into a life of freedom and joy. So following the example is so important because one, oftentimes wrong examples can be really enticing, and two, they're devastating. And Paul points this out in verses 18 and 19. He says, for many of whom I have told you I often told you, now tell you again with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. And the first thing I notice about these, these two verses, because even though Paul is sitting there saying, there, there are people out there, they're enemies of the cross, that, they're, that they are going down a pathway of destruction. Paul does not come at it from a place of, of a self-righteous, outraged culture warrior. And he says that, I tell you this with tears. Paul is, is brokenhearted. He's a brokenhearted, tender shepherd. He says, I don't want what I see happening to so many other people. I don't want this to happen to you, Philippian church. Don't give up, my beloved. Don't, don't end up like these others. He describes these enemies of the cross whose, whose God is their belly, their glory is their shame, their, their minds are set on earthly, earthly things. And again, in the biblical kind of view of the world, the biblical cosmology, you kind of have a three-tiered universe. You have heavens, earth, and then under the earth are the waters. And in this, Paul's not denigrating the earth as a created space, but earth is human space, heaven is God's space, and the goal is always that heaven and earth are united, that God's space and human space overlap and interact. That's the Garden of Eden, that's the New Jerusalem at the end of the Bible. This is the whole goal of the project. But in this particular moment, someone who has their mind set on earthly things are those who do not have sort of a transcendent view of the universe, who do not believe that there is something bigger at which we are aiming other than just human flourishing in these 80, 90 years that we have. Paul says that you know, they are focused on immediate, present, physical satisfaction. And the result is that they end up as enemies of the cross. Why? Because Jesus on the cross, emptying himself for the rescue not only of his friends, but also for his enemies, is the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite of immediate, present, physical satisfaction. The gospel calls us to a life of self-sacrifice. It calls us to a, a horizon of time that is bigger than just our current 80 years on this moment in this age. 
Now, to be clear, Christianity is not at all about extreme physical asceticism, though sometimes it has been expressed in that way. But Christians of all people have a, 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 are most aware, right? We're most aware of the goodness of God's world, the goodness of the created world, the physical materiality of our, of our bodies, of, of the trees and the plants and the buildings. Like, God has made all these things. So we have a deep appreciation for the physical, the material. It's not evil. But Christians are also the most aware, or ought to be the most aware, that those good things can so easily be turned into ultimate things. It's only because the creation is so good, so beautiful, even in its brokenness, even in its fallen state, that we run the risk of turning good things into ultimate things. Jesus' way, it's different, and it's hard, it is difficult. The race is long. So Paul says, don't give up, my beloved. Don't give up. Because here's the thing, friends. There are so many moments of, I'm sure you've had these moments as a kid or where you had something that was hard and you did stop, you did give up. And maybe there was a moment of relief, but rarely does joy ever come when we give up on something hard. Maybe there's some relief, but not often joy. Remember, if, if we give up the race, we throw in the towel, we end up throwing out the joy. Joy comes when we continue to press on, even when it's difficult, even in the mile 21 moments. So don't give up, my beloved. Because there is more joy coming. There is more joy coming. That's the promise that we have. And that's our, our last observation here this morning is that they is, there is joy coming, that there is an expectation of victory, that we have an expectation of victory. Because we need these examples to follow. Yes, we need encouragement to finish. But if we're really going to run this race, we have to have an expectation that we are going to finish. There's going to be a, vision, a, a victory at the end. And listen to how Paul concludes this section. He contrasts heaven and earth uh, we talked about are those who are earthly minded, and now he brings in the language of heaven here in verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject even all things to himself. I, I love that last line that Paul is saying, look, he is going to one day transform our bodies with the very power that has allowed him to rule the universe is going to come to Transform your earthly, lowly body to be like Jesus' resurrected body. And so Paul reminds them that their true citizenship is in heaven. And again, citizenship was a big deal in Philippi, right? It's this ancient Roman colony, right? The people who were there had often earned their citizenship through serving in the Roman army. A lot of them retired as Roman soldiers to this colony of Philippi. The citizenship language is really well tailored for this place. But Paul's point is that every Christian is always a dual citizen. No matter your nationality, no matter what passport you hold, you are always a dual citizen, Yes, we are citizens of this world, this time, this place. We are Americans, we're Kansasidians, but ultimately we are citizens of heaven. That our ultimate allegiance resides with King Jesus, who we await for the day that he will come and set all things right. And, and the point of this is that the lowliness of our bodies now is not that our bodies are bad. 
We affirm even now that our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made, but the hope of victory that we have is that one day even these, these good bodies will be made even much better. That these bodies that are now, they get old. They wear out. They're subject to disease and death and, and coronaviruses and all these other kinds of things. These weaknesses in our bodies will one day be transformed to be glorious like Jesus' body. And, and the lowly body, this current body we have, it's just a signpost to what is coming in Jesus when he comes to set all things right. Which means that even the highest pleasures of this moment of our bodies, the best sexual experience, the best food, the best drink, the best career, all the very best things of life that we experience in this body are just, just a, it's just a shadow. It's just a dim light of what is coming. Like the best thing I can, can like relate it to is that like this current lowly body, it is like a really good glass of refreshing tap water. It's a really good thing. But compared to the glorious body that's coming, that glorious new body is like a really well-crafted, aged, most complex, delicious glass of wine you've ever had. It's not, that the, it's not that the one is bad. Our lowly bodies are great, but there is something coming that you can only compare. It's like, yeah, a glass of good tap water is good. But if you imagine the finest, well-crafted, aged wine, that, that's, that's the contrast. Something so complex, so deep, so rich, so much more colorful and dynamic. That's the life that's waiting for us. And the thing is, is that we can be assured of this because Jesus has finished the race. And we're united inseparably to him. And one of the most powerful pictures of that uniting to Jesus that gives us the assurance of this victory, the expectation of this victory, is the picture of baptism. And I just want to encourage you, if you are a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for decades or for like 10 minutes, if you've not ever been baptized, you are missing out on one of the most powerful identity-forming moments you can have as a follower of Jesus to stand with your church family, with your brothers and sisters, and to go underneath the waters and come back up to, to actually physically sort of reenact this dying with Jesus and being raised to new life with him. It is such a powerful moment to say this is, I am inseparably united the one who has finished the race, and that one day my body is going to be like his glorious body. So if, you, if you've never done that, I'd encourage you to do that. It's been a while because of the pandemic since we've had a baptism service, but we have one coming at the end of June, June 27th. I'd love for, whether you baptize or not, come to the service and, and celebrate with those who are being baptized, but if you haven't been baptized, I'd love to talk with you about that. Answer questions you have. I'd love to be able to share in that moment with you being united with Jesus in the likeness of his death and being raised to new life. Our victory is assured. That expectation is clear. So beloved, do not give up. Don't give up. We have encouragement to finish. We have examples to follow. Look around at this room. There are examples to follow of what it looks like to run this race well and we have an assured expectation of victory that is secure even when we come slamming into those mile 21 moments of life. So even when it feels like we can't go on, don't give up. 
Friends, what we have as, as a rock-solid assurance is that Jesus will not ever give up on you. He will never walk away from you. He will never leave the room on you. You might walk away from him, but he will never leave you. And the pastor who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, another letter to, actually, to Christians who are facing their own mile 21 kind of moments in following Jesus, he wrote these words about Jesus, also using a race metaphor. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, Jesus has finished the race. Don't give up, my beloved. He has finished the race, and you, if you have faith in him, are inseparably united to him, and your victory is secure. It can't fail because he can't fail. He's actually already won. He's crossed the finish line. He's seated at the right hand of God. Your victory is secure because you are united to him. So don't give up. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. Don't give up, my beloved. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. No matter what. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I needed these words this week of encouragement to not give up. And I know the stories of so many in this room, and I know that they need these words also. So I just pray that you would meet us afresh, that, it, that if it hasn't happened already, that there would be someone who would encourage us this morning to not give up. As we sing the remaining songs, and even as we sort of take communion together, would it, this is not sort of sacrilegious, but would this, this moment of communion almost be like one of those aid stations on the race? As we partake of your body and your blood, would it be this little moment of encouragement, an aid station on this race that would give us energy, would give us hope, would give us affirmation of our forgiveness and, and the love that you have for us in a tangible way, in our physical bodies, which you've made and given us a physical act of communion to encourage and nurture us in. Would you nourish us now as we take the Lord's Supper together? In Jesus' name, amen.